Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Ken Banta and uh, he's a principal and a founder of the Vanguard Leadership Institute. He is coaching executives and telling them that, uh, you know, they need to do more than just to do their job to be successful in the long run. And we're going to find out more about this uh, on the back of his uh, article in the Harvard Business Review. Ken, uh, welcome. How are you today? Great. Thanks, Rudy. Thanks for having me with you. Brilliant. So can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more why, and also why and how have you become a leadership consultant? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, my background is uh, somewhat unusual. I was born in uh, Europe and then I grew up in uh, Italy and Frankfurt uh, for some time. I then became a journalist with Time Magazine. And uh, after that, uh, after a number of other uh, stops along the way, I was in some very large companies uh, involved mainly in uh, the role of transforming uh, the culture and the leadership uh, behaviors uh, on the executive team. So uh, that led me to uh, really think that I could help do this for others as well. And so seven years ago, we started the Vanguard Group for Leadership, which uh, is what I lead today. Right. And uh, in your research, which you co-authored with Orland Boston, right, published in the HBR recently, you argue that executives need to be engaged in the right kind of side work or side gig. Uh, so that they can boost their career. Why Why do you think so? Yeah, so what I've learned from my own experience and in talking to uh, hundreds or even thousands of C-suite leaders and uh, board members is that uh, increasingly today, it is very important to have, uh, first of all, a very broad network of people that you know that are not necessarily in your direct line of sight in business. And secondly, it's very important to develop experiences and uh, capabilities that you can't deliver on the job only. So I think the big uh, aha here is that the model of staying locked in your office and working 10 hours a day is really not uh, the best way to success. The best way to success, uh, perhaps uh, seemingly a little contradictory, is to spend more time out of the office, which will in fact increase the quality of the time in the office. All right. So what sort of activities do you find productive and helpful for one's career apart from the usual age-old uh, advice, uh, especially for the maybe American executives like golf or tennis? Yeah, uh, I think, uh, Rudy, the key is to uh, differentiate between hobbies and what we call side gigs or outside engagements. So right. hobbies like, uh, for example, I'm a backcountry skier, uh, a ski touring person. I find it a lot of fun, but I don't automatically see it as uh, contributing to my career. On the other hand, uh, learning how to do uh, new things in terms of leadership has been very valuable to me. And so a good example of a side gig for me has been my role as a chairman of uh, the board or co-chairman of the board of a nonprofit that deals in homelessness issues. And the uh, learning there was not really about homelessness issues per se, but more how to run a board, how to uh, deal with different personalities, and how to 
apply different styles of leadership, which were somewhat new for me. And uh, that really, in turn, contributed to my ability to work with uh, others even better. So that's a, a really good example, I think, of a side gig versus a hobby. Right. I mean, uh, what I call it, these are maybe productive hobbies, right? And uh, some would argue that uh, golf is somewhere in between because that's where you go network, uh, perhaps, right? Yeah, that could qualify. Absolutely. On the other hand, uh, yes, I think it depends how you uh, look at uh, golf. Uh, if it's really for, uh, really for uh, relaxation, that's fine, but that's not a side gig. If it's actually turned into a purposeful way of networking and learning, uh, then it would be. Right. And so what other activities do you recommend apart from, you know, your own experience for people serving on nonprofit boards, obviously, but uh, there is a much wider range of things that, you know, people can do as everybody's suited to something else, right? Sure. I think uh, one thing that everyone can do these days is to work with someone else on writing leadership or other types of material uh, that can be posted at one end on HBR and at the other end on LinkedIn. And uh, LinkedIn, essentially, as you know, uh, requires virtually no uh, editorial permission. And at the other extreme, you have some very demanding, difficult uh, publications to get into. But the point is that by collaborating with someone else uh, on an article, you learn a lot about several things, you know, how to write better, you learn how to express yourself better, and you learn how to work with someone else on a, a very, uh, sometimes very complicated project. So that's uh, one good example. Uh, another is to uh, serve as a mentor to people. Uh, I have uh, currently about three different people who I mentor, and uh, they're in different stages in their careers. But what's really interesting about it is that uh, not only do I learn a lot about how to help people deliver uh, better leadership or better uh, choices in their lives. Uh, but of course, through the dialogue, I learn a lot about myself as well. Uh, so those are two good examples. Um, another example with my co-author uh, on the piece for HBR, Orlin Boston, is that he serves uh, on the uh, USO board, which is a nonprofit for the armed forces in the US. And uh, he joined that board partly because he's very interested in the arts, but Orlin also really wanted to learn more about how to uh, run a finance department or understand finance, because in his role as a consultant, uh, he didn't really have that experience. So he purposefully chose not only to join the USO board, but to join the finance committee. And that really was a very uh, significant step toward helping him toward that goal. So you can see how his interest in the arts and culture and in sort of giving back, if you like, uh, combined with learning some very specific capabilities that really had only a little bit to do with the USO, but had a lot to do with that particular board position that he took. Right. And, uh, you know, sometimes people run from one appo appointment to another and their day is scheduled from, you know, minute by minute. So they don't realize this. I mean, this sounds to a large degree, if you have a bit of a hindsight, you know, benefit of a hindsight that this is common sense, right? But how did you come up with your conclusions uh, when you wrote the article for the, for the HBR? Did you do surveys of the executives or... Did you do workshops at your uh, leadership institute or how did you do that? Well, you know, it is common sense in a way, uh, Rudy, but it's also uh, a little bit contrary to what people at least have as accepted wisdom because there has been mm. for a long time a view that, uh, you know, you should really stick to your work and get really good at it and uh, not necessarily treat other things as uh, good uh, projects. And, you know, in some companies today, uh, there are very different um, attitudes about this. Uh, some organizations welcome this kind of diversity in people's experience, but others basically say you're actually eating up time uh, that should be devoted to doing your real job. Uh, obviously, I don't think, you know, Orlin and I don't think that that second point of view is the correct one. 
but uh, I would say that it's still somewhat controversial, uh, particularly when you move to the practicalities of this. Uh, you know, we recommend that people spend 10 to 15 or even 20% of their working time doing something that's different from their core job. That takes uh, some permission from your, uh, from your superior. It requires uh, some careful thinking by you. It's not something you do lightly. And uh, ideally, you do it, in fact, almost by necessity, you must do it in collaboration with the person you work for, unless you are the CEO, because uh, they need to understand why you're doing it and how it contributes ultimately to your job growth and either to your work now or your uh, capabilities later. So it is kind of common sense, but on the other hand, it's uh, rather controversial. I mean, you could also argue that uh, you know diversity in the workplace is very common sense, but obviously in practice, it's been very difficult to achieve. So I guess the bottom line here is you really have to work at it. Um, the way that we came to realize that this was important was, first of all, through our own experience. As you heard from my background, I've had a very, very diverse career. There aren't too many uh, journalists for Time Magazine that are doing what I do today. And I think that was because I was open to uh, zigs and zags and uh, taking on side gigs that or new gigs that I really didn't uh, have in some master plan for my career, but made sense as I went along. The other thing we did is we uh, talked to... Uh, more than 100, I believe, maybe even several hundred uh, CEOs and C-suite leaders uh, in, a, in a survey fashion to ask them whether they thought this was relevant and what they thought was relevant about our idea. And 100% uh, of them uh, said that this idea of uh, outside engagement or side gigs was uh, critical to really rising to the top levels of leadership. Right. And of course, you know, yes, you hinted at the uh, realities of life. Uh, you might be working for an organization where they don't see it uh, the same way as you or, or me. But uh, how do you find time for the outside activities that you're suggesting, right? Uh, how do you negotiate with your boss and or maybe with your family? And uh, I'm afraid that a lot of people maybe would after this agree that this is something they should do, but they will postpone it, right? Should they first read a book on how to end procrastination and invest in the mid, <laughs> you know, midterm and uh, you know, long-term development? Or how should you go about it and make a first step? Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, exercise, right? Everyone agrees it's good and not everyone does it. Um, yeah. So, well, I think one difference is that uh, it's important to pick things that would be your uh, external engagements that really fascinate you. So uh, it's not very helpful to do something that you think of as just a duty. And so, for example, exercise is a little harder sometimes because it doesn't always seem like a lot of fun to people or very rewarding. It's just a kind of a duty to keep yourself healthy. Uh, but I think we found that uh, people who have effective side gigs are doing something they really uh, find uh, fascinating and, and passionate about. So that's the first thing. So it makes it a lot easier if you have a passion for it. The second thing, uh, I think, is to uh, to think about time management in a, uh, a kind of a flexible way, sort of like Einstein did, you know, in the theory of relativity. I mean, time is not uh, something that is totally fixed by a clock. You can get a lot more done if you concentrate more uh, during the time you have, uh, and that makes time somewhat relative. Uh, so, for example, I think Orlin and I both are rather efficient in our use of time, and we get rather a lot done in a half hour. And that gives us another half hour to do something else. The third thing is to uh, realize that um, this is part of your work, and that comes back to needing um, permission and, and collaboration with whomever you work for and with to really agree that, um, let's say, 10% of your day or week of working week, not additional time of your time, but your working time with them should be devoted to these other activities. In other words, these are part of your job, not additional to it. That takes uh, quite a decision by you and by the person you work with. We find, though, that uh, very good managers or leaders very quickly accept this as a good idea. 
And, uh, you know, the corollary to this is that uh, someone asked us, well, what if my my boss uh, doesn't agree with this and won't allow it? You know, either you put up with that and do it on your own time, or you think about whether you really want to still be in that organization, because it doesn't probably line up with your values. Right. And how can you find the right opportunities? I mean, obviously, at this level, people always talk about networking or reputation, and that's how opportunities should find you, right? But uh, if you want to deviate from it and do something which is perhaps not obvious to everyone from outside in, uh, how does one create this kind of virtual cycle where you get these opportunities to be kind of adjacent to your current job and make you better? How do you go about it when you're busy and you have a full-time job to begin with? Yeah, that's a, that's really a very good question. And I think um, there's a couple ways to go about it. First of all, I think it's a matter of personal style. If you're someone who really does network a lot and your job, for example, encourages you to. So for example, you go to a lot of, well, back before the pandemic, you went to a lot of conferences. Now you go to a lot of Google meetings, but nevertheless, you're contacting a lot of different people. Uh, what you need to do is take a kind of different uh, optic on who you're talking to and move away from just thinking about how do they interact with you around your your core business or your current work and think about what they might know about things you want to do. So uh, very often, if you look at the people you know or you connect with in a different way, and for example, take a look at their bio, uh, which is extraordinarily easy to do now on LinkedIn, you'll suddenly realize that they, uh, you know, your interest is in uh, in how to lead in an arts organization, even though that's not what you do currently, because you think you'll learn a lot about dealing with very, uh, perhaps very complex personalities and, and much more uh, intuitive personalities than logical personalities, perhaps. Well, uh, you might find out that uh, one of your contacts is also on the board of an opera company or a music company. So then you go back to them and you say, you know, I, I had a great conversation with you about this work project, but could you introduce me to the world of uh, opera or music? And nine times out of 10, or maybe I found 10 times out of 10, they're delighted to do that. But you have to ask the right questions and have some uh, curiosity uh, and be able to s stretch beyond the linear relationship you have with somebody. The other thing to do is uh, just go on Google and look for things that interest you. If you, uh, if you think you'd like to uh, be involved in something like... Uh, oh, I don't know, sports management or uh, board membership in uh, not-for-profit areas or other things, one of the simplest things to do is go online and Google your interest and you'll find uh, a lot of avenues to pursue. But you have to be, I think, fairly creative about it. And uh, and you know, it's certainly true. No one's going to do this for you. You've got to have a little initiative. Right. Uh, but I guess if you don't have the initiative, if you don't have the initiative, then you probably don't want to be doing this. And if you don't <laughs> want to be doing this, then you shouldn't. <laughs> it's kind of circular. Right, right. Of course. I mean, obviously, the beginning of the, uh, of the podcast, we talked about the benefits of this, but let's zoom in on the long-term benefits as well, right? Which uh, a lot of people maybe have a, a high discount rate on these things and they want to get through a day and then through a week. And if you are an executive at a listed company through a quarter. So what are the long-term benefits that uh, you can get from having a strategic side gig that you would like to emphasize? Well, I think it depends, again, what your ambitions are. And some people's uh, goals are somewhat different. They may wish to uh, have a very... Uh, basic and perhaps not much changed job uh, for a long period of time, and they're very satisfied with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it can be a good way to uh, you know earn uh, money, have an interesting experience, although maybe not very varied in your role, and probably not uh, rise in your organization. And there's plenty of people for whom that's a good option. They they expend uh, their personal creativity and uh, ambitions in other areas, like their family, friends, travel. Uh, reading other things. Uh, and we all know individuals like that, and it's a very honorable way to operate. 
But I think if your goal is to be rising up in organizations and having leadership roles, then it's uh, proven and clear that the more diverse your experiences are and the diversity of, of capabilities, the further you're going to go. Uh, you know, there's this uh, inverse equation as you rise up uh, in organizations where suddenly your technical or business experience uh, in the direct area you're in becomes less and less important, right? Uh, you know, no longer are you rewarded for how well you can code uh, computer stuff. You're being rewarded for how well you can lead computer coders. So it's a very different role. A computer coder is highly focused and centered on their stuff. Uh, they don't need to know anything about how to deal with other people. They don't need to know much about how to create a strategy. They don't need to look around corners and think about uh, what might happen in the future. But when you rise up three or four levels beyond that, suddenly you do. And that's where many people uh, really fail. They uh, don't deliver those capabilities. They, they rise up and then they become uh, really victims of the Peter Principle, right? Which is that you're promoted beyond your, your bandwidth. Uh, and then they fail. And so I think, um, you know, it's really quite valuable to uh, think this way if you really have your eyes set on top leadership. Uh, and more and more, I think we find that top leaders uh, that we've interviewed and that we observe, I mean, I must have worked now with, as I said, several thousand C-suite executives and several hundred CEOs. I've had, uh, I've been the personal um, report to uh, more than five CEOs. You know, I can, I can be, I can tell you from my own experience and from, uh, and from uh, what we've learned from these thousands of other people, uh, this is a core uh, reality. It's interesting, though, that not everybody recognizes it. I think some of the best people, most successful people do this without really labeling it as what we labeled mm -hmm. it. So I guess really what we've done with this article is not, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, really. But what we've done is we've isolated a critical factor for leadership that was possibly not so visible to people. You know, you wonder why someone like Steve Jobs got where he did. You know, well, it wasn't just by being, you know, a pain in the neck and having a nice eye for design. He also had a, an amazing ability to pull to pull in outside ideas, absorb them, uh, you know, crystallize them, motivate people uh, to to do extraordinary things. All that stuff uh, doesn't happen by accident. Right. Uh, so let me take a bit of a detour and, you know, look at the even a bigger picture. Uh, this is quite a big picture, but yeah. in terms of, uh, <laughs> you know, office life and the future work topics, obviously we are in 2020. You know, amazing year by you know any any perspective, right? <laughs> so, but it it did bring yep. some of the some of the benefits for some sectors potentially, which is you know that uh, we a lot of people say that all of this uh, pandemic mess has accelerated digitalization trends and uh, introduced some people to remote working and working in a different way. So, do you think that uh, some of these things will be systemic or? When everything will be sorted, everybody will be happily running back to the office, open space, and commuting uh, on a subway, or 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 not. I mean, what's what's your view on this? Or and also, what do you hope for, if you have a preference? Yeah, well, you know, Rudy, I think uh, personally, I think that um, on the one hand, the uh, this uh, crisis has has precipitated. A acceleration of the use of uh, digital means, you know, beyond uh, the telephone. So, Zoom and uh, Google Meet and all these uh, technologies have been around for a while. Uh, but I think people suddenly discovered their value uh, through necessity, and so now I think, um, you know, very few consultancies are going to send, you know, ten or fifteen, twenty-year-olds uh, across the world, you know, to explore some situation in India when they can do it by Zoom. On the other hand, uh, when you're going to uh, finalize a deal or uh, work out a complex problem with your colleagues, 
you really want to be face to face. And right now, that's a that's a uh, negative. You can't be, and I think it somewhat slows things down. Uh, so I think you know we'll. I don't think we're going to see you know these uh, digital and virtual forms uh, disappearing. I think they're going to stay, but I think there's going to become a, a, a sort of a swing back to face to face as soon as that's possible. And I think the reason for that is is really basic human nature. You know, we're social. Well, most of us are pretty social animals, and uh, we really do get a kind of electricity and uh, and and you know, great things happen when people get together. It's uh, difficult for those kind of spontaneous things to to happen. And uh, you know, for example, I mean, when was the last time someone just uh, you know sort of stepped around the door of your Zoom uh, meeting and said, you know, what do you think about this, Rudy? I mean, it doesn't happen that way. You, you set up a meeting, you have it, and it ends. You don't just wander into someone's Zoom office and see how they're yeah. doing. But that's actually where, you know, great things sometimes happen. So I, I'd be very surprised to see all that disappear. But, you know, it'll probably become a much more flexible thing, which it, it certainly should. Why should you be coming into the office every day when you don't need to? Uh, why not come in once a week and do all of your uh, face-to-face then? And then you have you know, you can be either in a WeWork office or your own remote, you know, your own uh, cluster office somewhere. You don't need a separate little cubicle in a in a skyscraper. You know, we'll, we'll find out hopefully uh, soon enough how this pans out. So what are the next steps for you this year and beyond uh, at Vanguard Group for Leadership? Oh, that's a great question. Well, let's see. That focuses my thinking, I guess. Uh, I suppose uh, one thing we're going to do is uh, continue the virtual work that we do. Uh, so we have really two strains to our, our work. One is that we lead the uh, very, I'd say, successful and uh, high-end uh, set of uh, of uh, networks and uh, forums for senior executives in different uh, areas, like everything from GCs to uh, leaders of life sciences companies. And we have two such uh, sessions coming up in October, which are now virtual, which will be interesting. They're all being done on Zoom instead of face to face. Very intimate, very uh, very uh, focused on high level. Uh, leadership questions. We also have similar programs for younger leaders uh, who aspire to those things, which is sort of that side gig group, the people who have ambitions to be higher up that are trying to figure out how to get there. Uh, so that's going to grow and expand uh, probably into other uh, areas. We're going to most likely do one for the financial uh, uh, sector in the US and Europe, and we're doing one for uh, heads of HR in Europe and the US uh, in the coming year, as well as sustaining the ones that we're doing. The other side of what we do is advisory work. So we'll work with individual CEOs and uh, C-suite leaders on how to either uh, change their own leadership uh, or improve it. And we also work with them on how to accelerate the high performance of their organizations, um, primarily through the the people factor versus other things. And so that's probably going to expand a bit. Uh, but I'd say the big, um, the big thing probably for this uh, year is going to continue to be figuring out how to do these things in a remote way, you know, for example, we we're doing these uh, forums uh, now as virtual sessions, and it has some pluses because you can bring people together uh, very close in a way. I mean, it's very unusual to be so close to a CEO, you know, as you are on Zoom when we hold a session and a fireside chat with someone like that. On the other hand, you know, the human factor of uh, getting together over coffee or a drink, well, that's that's a lot harder to duplicate. So, uh, trying to figure out how to utilize the new technologies and minimize the downsides, I think, is a, is a overall a big priority, whether it's for the advisory work we do or the uh, forum and networking work that we do. Right, um, as it is for you know many people this year. So where can interested parties find out more about you and what you do and what kind of people would you like to hear from most, whether that's potential clients or partners or executives who feel like they need coaching? What's the best way to, to get in touch? 
Oh, I think the best way to figure out what we're doing is on our uh, website, of course, which is the vanguardgroupforleadership.com. And then uh, I'm happy to always talk to people uh, and trade ideas on email, and that's uh, ken at vanguardgroup.nyc. Uh, so those are the two avenues. And uh, we uh, find a lot of people get interested in our work through our website, and a lot of people get interested in our work through, um, through contacting me directly. The other thing uh, is that, as you gathered, I, I write a lot for HBR, and just going on HBR and looking for my name, uh, I think I've probably got ten or twelve articles there, which give a you know they're 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 perhaps a good way of learning how we look at things. Great, exactly. So thank you very much, Ken, and good luck. Thanks, Rudy. Thanks. It's been great to be talking with you. Thank you for listening to Voice of FinTech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceofintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.